0: As we begin this morning, let me read to you Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For their thrones were set up for judgment, thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I felt this was appropriate, not only because what is happening over there in the Holy Land today, which is anything but peace. But we'll be talking about David's capture of that city, and of course, one of the essential parts, ingredients in the name Jerusalem is peace, the word peace, and how little peace that city has actually experienced down through the millennia. It's one of the most captured cities in all of history, because it's one of the oldest cities as well. But the statement there in verse 3, where it says, Jerusalem that is built is a city that is compact together. If you've never been to Jerusalem, you don't know how compact the city really is, especially the city we're going to be looking at today, uh, which was just, just very, very small and very compact. So let's pray as we begin today. Father, we do want to, in obedience to your word, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Father, we don't know how that can be. We know it cannot be accomplished by human effort. Uh, uh, The the irresistible force has met the immovable object as far as the Palestinians and the Israelis are concerned, but only the Prince of Peace can really bring ultimate peace. We pray that he might come even soon. Our Father, we ask that you will bring peace to our hearts this day and that our lives will be lived, not just focused on our own little immediate environment, but constantly remembering the bigger picture of world evangelism of the church universal, of the fact that your people who have been called by your name, the Israelite people, have such a vast need to know Christ. So few of them, Lord, have ever turned their hearts to you. And so we pray that somehow that miracle will begin and thousands and even millions will turn to you from from your ancient people. Father, I pray that our hearts will be right, our attitudes correct and that as we live our lives each day, the glory of God and the peace that passes all understanding will be seen and will we'll bring um, opening for the word to penetrate in the hearts and lives of those around us who do not have that peace. Lord, bless our study this day, and uh, we'll give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the fifth chapter of Second Samuel. Let me begin reading at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone, your bone, in your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. You will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over Israel and Judah. You'll notice that even as early as this passage, already they're talking about Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. And of course, this will become eventually a permanent break. After the death of Solomon, Judah will be separated from the other tribes, and there will be two separate kingdoms, and uh, the northern kingdoms will eventually be destroyed and carried away. The southern kingdom will survive, and of course today we have the descendants of that region called Jews from Judah. What we're dealing with here is the city of Hebron. This is where David was king over the tribe of Judah for the seven and a half years, And so from all the tribes as far north as the land of Dan and Asher, representatives came, and even from Gilead on this side, they came and they gathered to David here at Hebron. So there was kind of a mass migration to the south part of the country. As I mentioned to you last time, if you add up all the numbers that are given there in uh, 1 Chronicles, the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, you're talking about about a third of a million men who gathered to, to Hebron. Now, if you've ever been to uh, Hebron, it's uh, it's a small town. It was even smaller at the time we're talking about, located um, near a hilltop. It, it would have been pretty crowded around there uh, with all those people gathering. And in the fields around the city of Hebron, a great festival was held. we're told that this festival took place over a period of three days. And that it was a planned event is quite clear from... The passage in First Chronicles that we read last time that people sent food from all over the land to feed this, this group of people that was gathered. So obviously they were not planning to just run down there, coronate David, and run back home. They were planning to have a party, a festival, a feast. And so uh, we're told donkey loads of food were brought, wagon loads of food were brought to feed this great crowd of celebrants. And the, word, and the passage says there was joy indeed in Israel, joy indeed. They had come through a tumultuous time. They had suffered a calamity on Mount Gilboa as the Philistines had killed Saul and Jonathan and, and Saul's two, two other of Saul's sons, and thousands of Israelis had, Israelites had died on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. And the nation was faced with a possibility of being overrun by the Philistines. But now they, they have coronated this man who is known as the slayer of Goliath, a man who every time he led the armies out had victory over the Philistines because David constantly gave credit to the Lord his God. Certainly the joy of this hour, of this moment, was sweet for David. He had weathered, assassination attempts by Saul and years of uncertainty and finally secured the throne that was promised to him years before on numerous occasions. Just think about this. The scripture does not specifically say this, but we know from our own experience that this had to be true, that in those years when David was being chased from cave to cave and Saul was trying to catch him and Saul was trying to kill him that Satan was constantly whispering or frequently whispering in David's ear, God's promise will not be fulfilled. You're going to die. You'll never be king over Israel. I mean, where would Satan be but right there talking to, to, to David? Where in the world would he be? Now, there's nowhere else in the world where God's action was happening as it was in the life of David. But David hung in there in faith. David kept the faith. David was a man of patience. And what he did not do was to attempt to force fulfillment of the promise. He did not try to force the fulfillment of the promise, running ahead of God and, and doing everything that he could by hook or by crook to get the throne just because he, he had been promised the throne. Oh, I'm going to get the throne. I'm going to get it however I can. I'm going I'm to buy votes over here. I'm going to kill this guy over there. No, David didn't do any of that. He let God do it. He wouldn't put his hand on the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't kill Saul himself, even though he had two opportunities where he could have done it in a moment. And and he wouldn't lay a hand on Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who erroneously was put on the throne in the place of David. His faith is now vindicated before the whole world. As the nation is gathered there to coronate David in this glorious hour, just think how it could have been ruined had he tried to do it on his own and not let it happen as God wanted it. Make it so that it isn't as glorious and wonderful as it would have been had we waited for God. We're in a hurry, it seems. God isn't. He's the Ancient of Days, the author of the universe, and he knows the appropriate hour and the appropriate moment. We don't. But that's why we need to be such intense students of God's Word and men and women of prayer, people who listen to the still small voice, because God doesn't usually speak in the, in the storm, he speaks in the silent hours. And if we're not silent, we don't hear. Second Samuel 5, 4, verse we just read a few moments ago, informs us that David was approximately 30 years old when he began his reign over Judah. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you read through the Old Testament, you will find that, generally speaking, ages and lengths of time are given in rounded off numbers. 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 30 years, you rarely rarely hear 34, 62, 97, you just hear rounded off numbers. You know, when, when, when Moses was 40, he was chased out of Egypt. When he was 80, you know, he had the burning bush experience, he died at 120. Does, does that make it not true? No, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying they rounded off. The Israelites rounded everything off uh, in their discussions in the Old Testament. They didn't give ages to the year. They rounded it off. So we're talking about J- David being approximately 30, just like Jesus was approximately 30 when he began his ministry. Now, Levites, we told in Scripture, cannot begin functioning in the tabernacle until they're 30 years old. The idea being they cannot do this until they are mature adults. Now, of course, in our society, people don't like to be told they're not mature adults till they're 30. They want to drive at 16 and drink at 18 and, and vote at 18 and all the rest of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but that's the way it is in our society. But scripture, I think, makes it pretty clear that maturity does not come at 18 or 21. It... Uh, comes closer to 30. And so when it says that David was about 30, it's simply saying that David was a mature adult by the time he was crowned as king over Judah. So was he 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35? He could have been any of those years at the moment that he actually acquired the position. However one interprets it, you discover that it's seven and a half years after he becomes the king of Judah that he actually becomes king of all Israel. So he's approaching 40 at the time that he's actually crowned as king over the whole nation of Israel. And like Saul, he ruled for 40 years. Did he rule for 40-0? or 41, 42, three, nine? Doesn't really matter. You have to realize in those days nobody had birth certificates anyway. You just guessed at how old you were if nobody ever bothered to write it down. To us it's so important. We're gonna guard the fact that you know my next birthday I'm gonna be You know. uh, We we don't want to tell anybody. We, we, We keep it a secret. Of course don't ever run for public office or do anything in in the popular entertainment field otherwise your age is blazoned all over the newspapers. Isn't it funny how every time you read a report in the newspaper about something it says, so-and-so 40, so-and-so 39, so-and-so 62, the age is always included in the article, almost always included in the article, as if, I guess that tells us something, right? We, we, we compare it to ourselves. Uh, well, if somebody died at, at 52, we think, oh my goodness, that's so young. If you're 29, you say, oh man, it's no wonder they had one foot in a banana peel, you know, and the other one in the grave at 52. As you go along, though, you think, somebody dies at 65, it seems like, oh my goodness, that's so young. They didn't pay much attention to those details in the day we're talking about. So when did David actually reign? Well, the best that we can come up with, the best that the scholars who have studied this can come up with, seems to be that David began his reign around about 1010 B.C., and he would rule until approximately 970 B.C. So... 3,000 years ago. That's close enough for us, I think. 3,000 years ago. We have a hard time thinking back to George Washington, you know, who just died a little over 200 years ago. We think, huh, oh, that's ancient history. It was only 200 years ago, you know. Methuselah lived 965. He wouldn't even hardly have been out of his teens by the time that many years had passed. Well, let's read at verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away, thinking, David can't get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. David wanted to break with Saul's precedent of establishing his capital in his hometown. This is what Saul did. Saul made Gibeah right there just north of Jerusalem, made Gibeah, his capital was his hometown. That was, that was where he was born and raised. And, and so it became his hometown. And all his cronies became ministers of state. And, and his army was made up largely of Benjamites. I mean, it was like the whole nation is ruled by this one little clique. Sounds like Chicago or something in terms of city rule. But uh, David wanted his capital to be in more neutral territory. He didn't want to alienate large numbers of Israelites because they were from some other tribe and were not part of the tribe of Judah of which David was. Now Hebron had a lot of things going for it down here. Hebron for example was the site of the cave of Machpelah. It's the cave which was a great honorable burying ground for the ancestors of the nation. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are buried in the cave. Isaac and Rebekah are buried in the cave. Jacob and Leah are buried in the cave. And so what other place would be a better place than to be the central city of the capital uh, of the nation than to be the city where the ancestors, the great honored ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives are buried? would make sense. Plus, at Hebron, you had the very first piece of land that Abraham ever acquired in Canaan. He bought the cave of Machpelah. That was the first piece of land any Israelite actually owned in the land of Canaan. And so all of these things were going for Hebron. But Hebron had a couple of real negative factors. One was it's very far south in the country. It would be like our country having a capital at Washington DC. How absurd. (laughs) I mean it's clear over on the other side of the country. Actually I think most of us are glad. But you know Hebron is way down in the south of the country not of easy access, and plus the fact it's right in the heart of the tribe of Judah. It was very Jewish, you might say, uh, in that sense of the word. Wisely, David wanted to choose a city that was closer to centrality uh, within the country which would be maybe on a borderland between a couple of tribes so that both tribes could at least have some. It's sort of like building our capital on land that was bought or acquired from Maryland and Virginia. And both states had to give up a piece of land in order for our capital to, to be established. Eventually, of course, Virginia would be given back its part because it wasn't built on in the early years. But um, it it became the District of Columbia, not belonging to to either tribe. And so the idea was maybe if he could find a city that's on the border that wouldn't belong to to either tribe or either of two tribes. And then on top of that, how much better would it be if it was a city still occupied by the Canaanites? That way it would belong to any tribe at all and could be a very neutral city. By capturing the city of Jerusalem, of course, David could also furthermore Fulfill God's command to Joshua to drive the pagan people out of the land. And that had not been completely fulfilled. But this would be a step in that direction. And at the same time, all of the tribes would have a sense that he's not showing favoritism to any particular tribe in so doing. So what does David do here? David exhibits wisdom Wisdom that, w- that Saul didn't even seem to possess. And, of course, the Scripture clearly teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. David feared the Lord. David had wisdom. Saul did not fear the Lord. David did not have, uh, Saul did not have wisdom. In that day, the day we're talking about, here's, here's of course, Jerusalem's in the middle of this old circle. The red circle is drawn on this map because this map shows the kingdom that Saul had built, and thus that David inherited. David inherited the land within these red lines. Saul did not possess Jerusalem, and Beth shan was at least lost to, by Saul to the Philistines uh, after the mount battle at Gilboa, if, if they possessed it before that. And so there's these two enclaves, even within the country, that were not possessed by, by Israel. And so here at Jerusalem, which is a little bit more central uh, than, than Hebron, anyway, a little lower in elevation as well, the route from Gilead through Gilgal and Jericho up to uh, Jerusalem made it fairly accessible to the east side of the tribes, the two and a half tribes that lived over here. So Jerusalem would have been uh, a better site. At that time, the city of Jerusalem was very, very small, but it was a very strong city, Uh, Jerusalem sits at a little over 2,500 feet in elevation up in the Judean highlands, and it sits on a 10-acre promontory. This is the Jebusite city down here. This is modern, well, I mean, that's modern Jerusalem, but of course it's not modern. These walls out here were constructed by, under the authority of Suleiman the Magnificent, the great Sultan of the Turks in the early 16th century. constructed the upper portion of of this wall. So that's the Turkish Jerusalem is what you visit if you go over there today. You visit Turkish Jerusalem. And, of course, this is the Temple Mount uh, up in here. So all of that was outside of David's Jerusalem. David's Jerusalem is not in the Old City as delineated by the walls today. It's within modern Jerusalem, but not within the walls of the modern Old City. The modern Old City. What, what is amazing about it was that the area inside there, the Valley? it's right here, Eastern Valley, Kedron, it, it runs along here. and Then, then, then you, you sweep around this way and you come up this side in what's called the Hinnom Valley over here. And this is called the Tyrapean Valley here, but it doesn't exist today because it's mostly been filled in, landfill type thing here. The Kidron Valley here is very, very obvious uh, when you go there today. In fact, one of the fun things to do is to be up here on the, on the Temple Mount and looking out this way across to the Mount of Olives on the other side. It's just it's a very dramatic drop off into the Kidron Valley. So we're talking about a city that was only about 10, maybe 12 acres. You think, a city of acres? I mean, we could put Jerusalem on the Simpson campus four times. Yeah, you think, well, see, they didn't live like you and I do. With our quarter of an acre and our white picket fence and our single-story ranch house, they lived San Francisco style, only a lot more crowded than that. Homes weren't even as big as they are in San Francisco. I don't know if you've ever lived in San Francisco, but my wife and I have in those houses, they're all built wall to wall. The advantage of it is, in earthquakes, they they support each other, they don't fall down. (laughs) In the fire, they all burned down. Yes, Dr. Walmark was born and raised uh, just a few blocks from the old campus at Simpson College, and so he knows the city far better even than I do. This particular promontory here is called the Ophel. It still exists, and, and you can walk down down this, the Cadrone Valley here and, at the base of the hill here. And uh, you can look up the hill, and they've done a lot of excavating there because they've excavated the Jebusite walls, and they've ex- excavated uh, later walls that have been built there uh, on the side of the Ophel. The word Ophel, O-P-H-E-L, means swelling. It's kind of like a boil, you know. It's a piece of land that kind of boils up here, and the city was built on that particular little mound. So, so the, hills, the hill drops off very steeply, and, and then the city walls are built up the hill. So, in order to even attack the walls, you had to climb this very, very steep hill, which made the site virtually impregnable. And that's why we have the, that kind of gives us an understanding of why the Jebusites said what they did here. The city was known as Jebus. And, of course, that simply comes from the Jebusites, who lived in the city. Now, the Jebusite clan was a group of Canaanites who are actually first mentioned in Scripture in the 10th chapter of Genesis. So they go way back in time, the Jebusites do. When Joshua destroyed the city of Ai, or Ai, if you like, the king of Jerusalem, you may remember, we studied this back when we were talking about Joshua, that the king of Jerusalem created a um, a confederation, remember? Several kings joined together, five of the kings joined together to try to stop Joshua, but they were chased clear down onto the, the Philistine plains and they were killed and their army was destroyed uh, at that particular time by Joshua. But apparently the city was not even attacked. The city of Jerusalem was left untouched, even though the king and part of their army had been slain. So the city was not captured by Joshua. In fact, we read in Joshua fifteen sixty three these words, Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day, at the time of the writing of Joshua. So the city was not captured. However, after the death of Joshua, as we get into the very first chapter of the book of Judges, we do read that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and its inhabitants were killed by the Israelites, by the tribe of Judah, but they didn't follow it up by occupying the site. They apparently destroyed the the people and and destroyed much of the city and then just left it. And the surrounding Jebusites, who lived in other little towns around there, apparently got back into the city, rebuilt its walls, and maintained Jebusite control of the city. We read in in the first chapter of Judges as well, it says that the Benjamites as well made no attempt to remove the Jebusites, but simply tolerated them as their neighbors. And we discover Saul made no effort to capture the city of Jerusalem. Now, you might think, how can that be? The most famous city in the history of Israel, and they don't even bother with it. Well, it wasn't famous in that day. It was just one of the little podunky cities up on a hillside, very hard to capture, so why bother? Jerusalem, as an inhabited site, is believed to date back to about 1800 BC. So the city is close to 4,000 years old as an occupied site. And of course, the Jews believe it was occupied even further back in time because they, not too long ago, celebrated what they called the 4,000th anniversary of the the city of Jerusalem. But they can't prove that, neither can anybody else, because all we have is archaeological evidence, and that cannot validate uh, the site that specifically. The first mention of the city may be in Genesis chapter 14. It's not totally agreed on by everyone, but most are pretty sure that the reference in Genesis 14 is to this same site. You remember that Lot and his family were carried off from Sodom by the uh, kings from Mesopotamia. And so Abraham lit out after them and, and recaptured Lot and drove off the enemy army and captured all the goods. And on his way back, it says in verse 17 of Genesis 14, then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of the most high God and he blessed Abraham. And you remember Abraham gave him a tenth of all that he had. And in the Psalms, as well as in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is is placed not in the order of Levi as being a priest, but in the order of Melchizedek, one who had no father and no mother and and whose reign was eternal. Uh, This Melchizedek was, I believe, a Christophany. And he was king of Salem. And most believe that was probably Jerusalem. Not everyone agrees, but that's, probably the, the place from whence he came. The first biblical reference to the actual name Jerusalem, however, is in the 10th chapter of Joshua, and that is the reference I referred to a moment ago, where Adonai Zedek, who was the king of Jerusalem, called together a confederation of Canaanites to stop this Joshua who, who, was, who had destroyed Ai and had destroyed Bethel and was moving into the land, and we're gonna stop him right here. And so this great uh, confederation was put together. It's very interesting that the king of Jerusalem, who was a Jebusite, his name was Adonai Zedek, which means, my Lord is righteousness. There's evidence from Egyptian sources, what are known as the, Armar- the Amarna letters, which are letters that were produced back in the 15th and 14th centuries before Christ and which were discovered at a site in, in, in Egypt, halfway between Cairo and uh, Thebes, or Karnak, Tel El Amara, Amarna, uh, which mentions the name Jerusalem in it. And uh, these letters go back about 3,500 years. And they give us a historical reference outside of the scripture to the name Jerusalem, which means is believed to have meant foundation of peace. And that indicates that the name Jerusalem actually preceded the name Jebus. Jebus was a later name and that Jerusalem was an earlier name for the site. In this passage, we find for the first time the name and the word Zion and city of David. David will apply both of these to this city once he captures it. Zion, which probably means stronghold. There's no very, very sharp, clear origin of the word Zion, but most believe it meant stronghold. And, of course, the city of David, we know exactly where that came from. Now, the capture of the city is mentioned only very briefly in the passage we just read in verse 8 David said on that day whoever would strike the jebusites let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel therefore they say the la- the blind or the lame shall not come into the house the jebusites were so confident of their location their strong stone walls were built part way up this very steep hill in virtually inaccessible the only part of the city where the walls had to be thicker and, and higher was on the north because it, it flattens out up here and goes all the way up into the Temple Mount area. Uh, but it's, it was steep on all of these sides and, and much the, the slope from the wall to, to the land was very mild here. So that was most accessible. Therefore, the walls were very strong, stronger at that particular point. So they were absolutely confident. You, he cannot get in here. David will never get in here. So they taunted him and they said, We are so confident we're going to guard this city with the lame and the blind, and you won't be able to get in. Talk about waving a red flag in front of a bull. (laughs) Josephus, who wrote in the first century, said, Now the Jebusites, who were the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and who were by extraction Canaanites, shut their gates and placed the blind and the lame and all their maimed persons upon the wall. In way of derision of the king, meaning David, and said that the very lame themselves would hinder his entrance into the city. They did this out of contempt of his power and depending on the strength of their walls." Yes. Well, David did not have just 600 men here. This was not just David's little army of 600 men. He's got the combined army of thousands of Israelites along with his 600 men, and he's laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. There is no doubt they could have starved the city into submission. I mean, we're talking about a very small city. All he had to do was plant his army out around here and shut off all ingress and egress. And eventually the city would have had to surrender. But David was not going to wait months to starve this city into submission. After all, they had said, our blind and our lame will keep you out of here. That's what we think of you, David, and your army. So obviously David wasn't going to just starve them into submission. He had to figure out a better way. He believed that a capture of the city would be the fulfillment of the original command God gave to Joshua to get the Canaanites out of the land so he was doing the will of God. And the taunts that were given by the Jebusites merely encouraged David to make this a short battle. Get it over with. In a hurry, because if he was able to capture this strong city in a short period of time, it would confirm to all Israel that he was by far the most qualified man to be their king, and it would also demonstrate to the world that the Lord his God was with him. And this, I believe, is of course the key to David's success. He trusted in the Lord his God. And God gave him wisdom and insight. God gave him a spy. God gave him a, a, somebody who was a renegade and uh, wanted favor maybe with David and, and may have been a Jebusite and, and gave him information. Whatever it was, we're not told. But it led to the capture of the city. In verse 6, which includes the Jebusite taunt, we discover that immediately it is followed by verse 7, which simply says David did indeed capture the city. But then verse 8, you'll notice this happens. How often this happens, where the Scripture goes along and then it brings the conclusion, and then it goes back and tells how the conclusion was arrived at. So when you read Scripture in the Old Testament, you have to always bear in mind it isn't necessarily in chronological order. Uh, The author had another goal in mind. This is this is what happened. Now I'll tell you how it happened. And and so you go on because other people who take and look at this literally, they come up with all kinds of convoluted and distorted ways of trying. Well, David captured it, then he lost it, and then he captured it again. You know, no. David issues a challenge to his men. Take the city through the water tunnel. The water tunnel? A water tunnel. This is so funny. I have, one of the commentaries I use from time to time is the Kylan uh Commentary of the Old Testament. And Kylan Delich lived 150 years ago, and uh, they were German commentators, and, and they're very conservative and, and very good. But on, on this passage, it's funny to read it, because they have no clue what this water tunnel is. You know, what, what is this all about? <laughs> well, I've seen the water tunnel. I've been in the water tunnel. Uh, you know, modern archaeology has done so much to open up the, the history and to help us to understand how these things actually happened. And we don't have time to develop it today, but let me just point out here. On the side of the hill where the city is built, the base of the hill is the Spring of Gehon. The Spring of Gihon uh, today is all blocked up. And, I mean, from the outside. You, you can get in. There's a, there's a big entrance way with a gate and everything. You have to get a key to get in through the gate to get inside the water tunnel. But Hezekiah, in his day, would build a tunnel all the way through underneath this area here uh, to the pool uh, of Salome inside the city of Jerusalem. But the day we're talking about, that didn't exist. But they had blocked off the, the spring so that it wasn't clear that it was flowing or where it was flowing from. And they had built a tunnel from the inside the city down to the spring. And it was totally inside the rock, so they could go down and bring water back and forth inside, inside the city. And, and the enemy couldn't stop that. But, of course, David, possibly through a spy or, uh, you know, somebody who uh, fled from the city in, in hopes of some kind of blessing, <laughs> uh, told them about the water tunnel. And so he dug into the hillside until he intersected the water tunnel. You know, and then the men went up the water tunnel. And that ended the story, and Jerusalem would be captured. ...affirming David's the ultimate of his kingship, making short work of this of the city, like he did here. Didn't waste any time. I, my mind went back to David to Goliath when he started out. Same thing. He made short work of that, and that was really the initial confirmation of of what was now is coming to fruition. Right. Yeah, that's really a good point. I want to talk about this in a little more detail and, and bring in the other things that the Scripture talks about that, uh, this event. So we'll, we'll do that next time.